0: Well, let's pray together again. Father, we come to you in this moment wanting to see you glorified and and lifted high, wanting, Father, to learn to know you, to be like you, wanting to see our faith grow and be challenged. And Lord, we know that we don't possess the strength to make that happen on our own. We know that we are in need of you all the time so we ask that you would guide us now guide me as I speak guide us as we listen use your spirit to challenge us and prod us and to make us like you we love you and it's in your name we pray amen so I had a bet with some friends at the last church that we were at. And, and this isn't the kind of bet where you, you lose something of monetary worth. The bet was, it was about basketball. And I'm a basketball fan, but I'm not really a diehard, here's my team fan. Partly because having gotten married when we did, my wife and I got married living in Minnesota, then we moved to Tennessee, then we moved to Nebraska, then Denver, then Nebraska, then Iowa. By the time we got to Iowa, I wasn't tied to any college team at all. Now we're in Michigan, but while we were in Iowa, we had a, I had a standing bet with my friends that when the Hawkeyes played the Cyclones, it's called the cy hawk game, they would they would play in December for basketball, and whoever won that game, I would root for that team for a year. And my rooting for that team consisted of changing the putter cover in my golf bag. And that was about it. But, but that was the bet that we had. And, and one, one year, the Cyclones were playing the Hawkeyes. And, and I was a Cyclone fan until the end of the game. And if the Hawkeyes won, I would become a Hawkeye fan. So I was rooting for the Cyclones. And they led in that game for exactly two seconds of the game. But... They were the only two seconds that mattered. They scored to get ahead with two seconds left in the game, and they won. They were tied or behind for the entire rest of the game. Now, I watched the game, having been recorded, because I was in a meeting, and I couldn't be there live to see it, so I knew the score when the game was going on. But my friend, who's a diehard Cyclone fan, did not know how the game was going to end, as he had an ulcer for most of the game. And he struggled, and he was was worked up. Uh, But I, it didn't matter if they were down 20 at the half, which they were. I knew they were going to win with two seconds to go. I had no reason to be concerned. Total confidence in the outcome of the game, right? Because I already knew how it ended. If I didn't know... That's when we get worked up. That's why we like sports. We can get into it because we don't know how it's going to end. But when you know how something's going to end, you can have confidence in its ending, in how it's going to result because you know that you can't change it. No matter what I did, it wasn't going to change the actual end score of that game. It was going to end with the score that it ended with. That sort of confidence, The confidence of knowing how a thing ends is what we're looking at this morning out of Ephesians chapter one. We are again back in chapter one, verses three to 14, this time looking at our confidence in salvation. Verse three starts, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Last week, we looked at God's sovereignty as a general rule, what it looks like for God to be sovereign over that which he has created. And that sovereignty, that reality, is the only thing that gives us confidence in salvation. Because if God is not sovereign, if he is not actually in control, if he is not actually the king, then there's always a chance that we lose because God loses. But because we know that God will not lose, then guarantees that He makes become actual guarantees to us. So as we look particularly at verses thirteen and thirteen and fourteen, it says this: Remember, He's already said we've been adopted predestined for adoption in Christ, right? And then we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to him who works all things after the counsel of his will, right? Verses verses five and 11. Now he says, in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So so when they heard this, um, somebody brought this to them, a variety of different people did, but somebody brought the gospel to these people and they heard this reality, which implies that somebody was speaking to them, right? As a general rule, we say, well, people already know the gospel. They've heard about Jesus. There's maybe not a whole lot I need to say to them, so I'd rather keep my mouth shut because it might be awkward if, you know, I say something to them and they don't want to believe it. And and so we we did just sort of, Don't do anything. But somebody shared with their words the gospel to these people. And they believed, right? So when you heard the gospel of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, something happened. So they heard and believed. And at the same time that they heard and believed, something was done to them. They were sealed with what? The Holy Spirit. And that's important. It's important to recognize that that's what seals us because when we're sealed by him, he becomes what Paul calls the guarantee of our inheritance. The best way to think about a guarantee in this sense is to say, oh, I have a rich rich uncle. Apparently everybody has a rich uncle. So we'll, we'll use a rich uncle. I have a rich uncle who's going to sign my house loan with me for my mortgage. What is his role as the guarantor of that? His role is that if Brock stops paying, who will? He will. He guarantees the money for the house. Usually that's in a situation where that person could just write a check for that house, right? So if this person over here can write a check for a house, they become a guarantee to that loan, to that mortgage to say, oh, if this person stops paying, I will cover whatever is left. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's our guarantee in this sense where when you and I fail and would do what would cause our salvation to be lost, he guarantees that it is kept. He's the guarantee because he has sealed us with a seal that no one can break unless they're stronger than he and there's nobody stronger than he is. If we flip to Romans chapter 8, we can look at verses 35 to 39, and we'll read this quick. There's some amazing things that come before this, but we're going to start in 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So so that's setting up this, Paul's asking the idea and, and putting out there the question that's going to be answered. So who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? He's already said a lot of things, but who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. All these things that could be troubles to us, right? Can those separate us from the love of Christ, that which has been given to us when we put our faith in Christ and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit? Can those troubles in this world separate us? His answer is a resounding no, right? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I'm not sure I like that phrase. No, we can know we have salvation in the Lord and none of these things can take it away because the reality is we're dying all day anyway. So what's the difference if we actually die and go to be with him versus are just in the process of dying to be with him? The logic is sound. I like that. I just don't like the idea of being a sheep led to slaughter. I don't like the idea of being killed all the day long. That does not sound enjoyable. But even if that were the case, our salvation is not lost because it awaits us later as the Holy Spirit guarantees it to us. But but what if it's not circumstances that cause us to lose our salvation? What What if it's people? Okay. So he goes on. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all of these tribulations, all of these trials were more than conquerors. For I am sure, and this isn't Paul's surety. This is the Holy Spirit working through him and inspiring scripture that is the surety. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of these people, none of these groups have the strength needed to separate us from the love of Christ. Our salvation is secure. Our salvation is assured us, but we could ask, what if we choose to reject our salvation? To which we look back at this and we ask one simple question Are you, am I, a created thing? Yes, we are, right? All finite beginning, finite on earth end eternal life with Christ or eternal separation without him, but finite in the sense that we have a beginning. We are a created thing. And Paul writes, there is no other thing in all creation that can separate us. So, so you've got all these things, right? You've got death, life, angels, rulers, the present, the future, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing. And you and I are a created thing. So when it comes to our salvation, even our failure doesn't put God in a position of rejection because we cannot separate ourselves from his love. However, and this is where we're gonna have to balance two things at the same time to fall either direction puts us in mortal trouble or mortal peril. However, if we choose to reject him. If we choose to walk away, we will not lose our salvation. But if we read the epistle of John, the letter of John to the people, and it's 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us. Who is they? If you back up, and look at the context, verses 15 to 17 talks about people who love the world. And in loving the world, you end up rejecting God because you can only love one of the two. You can love the world or you can love God so that they are the people who have chosen to love the world, right? And that's going to make sense as we go through this verse. They went out from us, but they became not part of us. It's not what it says. If they became not part of us, then they would have lost their salvation. That's what he would be implying. But he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, the same heart, the same sealed persons who believed in the Holy Spirit, who believed in Christ, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not ever of us. So, It doesn't actually change the net end result. If somebody were to say, oh, that person has lost their salvation because they walked away and they then need their salvation again. Or if you were to say of that person, they never were saved because they walked away and that proves that they were never saved. And that walking away is not a momentary, I made an error, I I failed, I messed up. This This is a ongoing, consistent rejection of the gospel. Those people who went out in that sense, they were never actually part of us because if they had been part of us, they would have remained part of us, he writes. But they didn't lose their salvation. Their sealing of the Holy Spirit remained and remains regardless of their own failures. If we flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15, Paul writes this. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's the presumption. Chapters 1 and 2, he talks about Christ being the foundation, the cornerstone, that upon which everything is built. And that becomes the immediate most important aspect to this. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, right? We can build on that with gold, silver and costly stones or precious stones or wood, hay and straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has been that someone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. This is only talking about a reward, right? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, not get a reward, though he himself will be saved, though only through fire. If the foundation of our faith is Christ, then if everything else after that is poor workmanship... It will be burned up and we won't get the reward from Christ of well done, good and faithful servant. But we also won't get a rejection from Christ because the foundation has remained. And if that foundation is real, that becomes the question. If the foundation is real, your salvation is for sure assured. If that foundation is on anything other than Christ, then your foundation will not survive the test. And that becomes a question that only you can answer for you and you and the Holy Spirit can engage with. I can't answer it for you. Nobody else can answer it for you. But those of us whose faith is truly in Christ as our only salvation, as our only forgiveness, as our only chance to life, our salvation is assured now, all of that to build on the idea, to set the stage that it is real, that our salvation is for sure. Paul wrote to Timothy as a, a fellow pastor. He said, if we are faithless to him, he remains faithful to us. So then what? What? What's the result? Because it's wonderful to talk about this theological treatise, this theological position, but what does it matter to us as we walk out these doors and engage with life? What does it change? It should change a lot, actually. For many of us, we will have one of three options on how we engage with this sort of truth. One is we become arrogant over it. Two, we become apathetic. And three, we become bold. Uh, The arrogance we see as we move into different aspects of life, the arrogance is sort of a, I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me anyway sort of arrogance. This isn't the arrogance of telling someone else that you're better than them. This is the arrogance of taking advantage of God's grace and saying, God, you're gracious and merciful, so therefore I can do whatever I want and you're still gonna love me. Now, lest you think poorly of people who do that, so did you. At some point, each one of us has done that exact thing, probably today, if not today, then yesterday, where we knew the right thing to do. And we still did something else because in our heart, we justified that it was okay to be angry. It was okay to say a certain thing. It was okay to look at a certain thing or think a certain thing or act in a certain way because God's still going to love us. That is one potential result. Paul wrote in Romans 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, what shall we say then? And he likes to ask that question. Because of what was just said, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No. No, he says. It's actually the most emphatic way he can say it without being vulgar. That's the idea put forward. No, no, no. You do not continue to sin because God's going to give you grace. That misunderstands your sin and the fact that Christ had to die because of it. And if we truly understand what our sin did to Christ on the cross, to his person, who he really is, then we would likely not take advantage of that by saying, it's okay, God will still love us. God will still love me if I X. I personally have a temper issue, which is why my dad told me he was never going to allow me to play hockey. I really liked hockey. The idea that you could hit someone whenever you wanted, as hard as you could, I realized there's actual rules to it, but in my head, that's what you got to do. He said, no, this is not a sport I will let you play. He said, I played hockey. It encourages what we're trying to work out of you. It was a good move, but I would have liked it. That's part of my issue. I could see myself get angry when I get competitive. I've also found out through trial and error, all error actually, that James was right when he says the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. There's never been a moment where I lose my temper and get angry that anything has been bettered. 41 years of trial and error. I think it's going to stay consistent. But that's what we get. But I still, in certain moments, when my heart is tired and when I just don't really want to care, I still have moments where I say, it'll be okay. Just get angry. God will still love you. It will still be okay. And I want to live in this arrogant position of I can do whatever I really want because it's going to be forgiven anyway. That's one result. A second potential result is, well, if my salvation is secure, then I'm just going to go to a beach and hang out in a hammock mentality called apathy. Apathy is that moment when you just don't care what happens. Uh, there's an element to where we shouldn't care what happens. The results aren't ours. We talked about that last week. That is God's role. But there's times where we say, eh, I don't want to put any effort toward it. Takes too much work to wake up in the morning and do my devotions. Takes too much work to be kind to my wife. It takes too much work to not exasperate my children. It's easier if I just demand from them what I want and, and say, I don't, I don't care, right? Just do what I say. It's sometimes just too much work to try. And so we give up trying. We find apathy to be there. And we find ourselves saying, Whatever, I guess. Peter wrote about this. He wrote about an opportunity that we have that, that we frequently don't talk about. It is important to know that you and I cannot, through our own efforts, make ourselves more like Jesus. We don't have that strength. We don't have that ability that was never intended to be our reality. Yet, 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 We walk another fine line and we see in Second Peter chapter two or chapter one rather verses three to seven we see this. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So that's where he starts we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Understanding is important, right? You cannot grow in the use of knowledge if you don't possess the knowledge. It's why doctors go to four years of school learning things that they may never think about again for years, and then 10, 15 years later, they realized that they understand things. They didn't even realize they really understood because they have this huge foundation of knowledge upon which all of their practicing is built. Anyway, he's called us by to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us the precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desires. For this very reason, The reason we looked at verses three, four, and five is because, or three and four, is because five starts with for this very reason. Because of those things being true. Because God's given us what we need. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, With virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort. Put the work in yourself to supplement your faith with all of those things, all the way to love. Why? Why? because the Holy Spirit has given us the opportunity to work alongside him in our own development, though we don't even deserve that. He's given us that opportunity. So it's not a time to become apathetic. It's actually a time to put in more effort because of what he's done for us. We've all seen that. Somebody does something incredibly, incredibly nice to you and something deep inside of you wants to repay it as much as you can. Though you can't repay it and usually trying to repay it lessens the gift that they gave to you. But that's not the exactness we're speaking of here. Here it is, God did something incredible for us and so because of that, we want to respond in kind. We want to respond in such a way that we further what he's been doing, not detract from it. Now, if we say this is going to be our starting point, we all need to work really hard that we'll find failure at every turn. So how do we grow in Christ if the way that we grow in Christ is by not making it our own strength and effort that causes us to grow in Christ. It seems like a really weird circle of events. If we back up to John chapter 15, we see this. John 15 verses four and five, abide in me, Christ says, and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You can't grow fruit on your own, but if you remain abiding, resting, relying on him, you will bear fruit. So our job, really, to build on our faith all the way to love is to abide in Christ, to trust and depend on him to grow those things in us. Along with that, he gives us the opportunity to work toward it as well, but only so far as we're abiding in him. I know that seems almost convoluted because it is a little. Because he's giving us opportunity that we don't deserve to be part of something that only he can do. There's two verses that we should all memorize the reference to. They're really, really simple. John 14:15 15, and 15:14 15, I am very glad when God does things like this for my brain to remember. John 14:15 14, 15:14 15, 15, 14 say effectively the same thing. John 14:15 says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15:14 says this. You are my friends if you do what I command. Effectively the same thing, just in reverse order, right? If we love him, we will do what? Obey him. Not out of compulsion, but out of love, out of desire. If we jumped to one of the passages that I am really glad is in the scriptures and sometimes wish wasn't, You ever have those passages and you risk that you kind of wish they weren't because they're really, really convicting sort of like the passage out of James chapter two, uh, where he says verses seven or 12 to 26 are all about faith without deeds. And he's basically making the argument. If you claim to have faith, but you don't have works that go along with it, the result of faith, then your faith is not faith. It's dead. If it's real faith, it will result in works. It will result in the actions of that faith. If there's no actions, you can know that the faith is dead. It's sort of like looking at a tree. You ever looked at trees in the winter? Uh, We had a tree on our property in Iowa. One tree that I could not get to cut down, mainly because it was on a really steep hill and I didn't feel like dying. So, I sort of kept putting off cutting it down. Every winter didn't bother me. Why? Why? Because the dead tree looked pretty much like every other tree, right? But in the summer, something happened to other trees that didn't happen to this tree. They grew leaves. This one did not, right? You know the tree is dead when it doesn't grow any more leaves. You may know it's dying when the leaves aren't growing well, but you know it's dead when there's no growth on it. God, in his mercy decided to let the tree fall down exactly two weeks before we moved to Michigan. <laughs> but the tree was down. It made me very happy. But this is one of those passages that talks about something similar. And, and you almost wish wasn't there because when it's there and we know it, we have to follow it. And if we didn't know it, maybe we could plead ignorance. But he doesn't give us that. Luke chapter six, verses 43 to 46. And here is one of those places I despise Bible putter togetherers. I know that's not really a word, but but I don't like verses and I don't like headings in this case because I really don't think we should separate the idea in verse 46 from the verses before. But when we see a break with a header, we have this idea that those are separate sort of chapters and ideas and things. But when it was written, it wasn't written like that. It wasn't even written with verses. It was just written with words. And in fact, when it was written, they didn't even use spaces or punctuation. They were just supposed to know it. So, for no good fruit, sorry, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's where I wish we didn't have those verses. I don't actually mean that. Because it's wonderful that we do. But I am convicted deeply when I realize that my mouth only speaks what's really inside of me. Similar to when somebody says, The alcohol made me do it. It didn't. The alcohol maybe convinced you to stop putting in check that nature which is in you anyway, but you made you do it. It's that idea. What's inside of you comes out in those moments. But then we separate it from verse 46. But verse 46 says, So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So the good person bears good fruit because of the good that's in them, the Holy Spirit. The bad person bears bad fruit because of the bad that's in them, their brokenness. And the first idea that we have to this is maybe backwards because the fruit that's talked about is actually the fruit of the spirit that, Jesus, that Paul writes about later. It's not the producing good things around you fruit. It's also not the good person doesn't have errors. It's the, the good bad fruit idea is I do not like olives. Just so you know, I like olive oil and things. Olives themselves, I, I don't understand. Anyway, it would be like a cherry tree, which are great. All of a sudden, growing olives, which are bad. I even tried as an adult, I decided to try an olive because I was like, surely, surely they aren't, yeah, they're that bad. I know people like them, but that which is in us, that which is true, truly within us, comes out. Our confidence in salvation should cause us to be bold not apathetic, not arrogant, but bold and bearing fruit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this group, this time. Lord, allow us to bring you honor and glory in our lives. Allow us to be men and women who bear fruit and know you and follow you. Allow us, Lord, to... Be confident in our salvation. We do love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.